send me a new uh, viewer discretion. I think I've only got one on my computer, and I use it every time I do a podcast. Send me another <laughs> one of the. Well, that's the thing with with Roll Spine, we don't do it. I, I don't ever put it in viewer. Uh, we don't discretion. do that. Yeah, if you're listening to Roll Spine, if you don't know what you're listening to, then you just fucking you're gonna have to go with it. Like I'm gonna cut. Like, I'm gonna cut like, what you like just said and put that at the beginning. Right. Welcome to the Rolled Spine Podcast. I'm a legal machine. With me is uh, Diablo Frank. That we don't usually do yeah. intros for these things, though. This it doesn't matter. Like, just, it yeah. doesn't matter because you're, you're, you're the maestro, so I'm yeah. just following so, your lead. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. So this is uh, this should be Rolled Spine Special Number 37, an intimate evening with Diablo Frank. Filler. Basically, Diablo Frank is leaving the country, and we don't have a podcast, so I <laughs> volunteered. To put this uh, very brief shindig together so we can have something to uh, release. Um, all right. So here's some questions I've got for you here, Diablo Frank. You ready for these? These are comic book related or comic book adjacent. Is this opinions or like Trivial Pursuit Jeopardy no, kind no. of thing? What are we doing here? No, no, no. It is definitely not trivia. It's opinions from okay. you that I don't know if we have necessarily touched on any time recently. So we're going to get into these. And anyway, just bear with me here. If the question sucks, you can say pass and we'll move on. But I don't think you will. I think there's a pretty – this should give us 15, 20 minutes of uh, maybe content. Stuff, yeah. I don't know. If not, we'll just put huge blocks of silence in between them. <laughs> okay. My first question, and this is because of something you did recently and I was just thinking about it. What do you think or what are you hearing is the current state of Comic-Cons in the United States? states of america because comic cons really turned into movie cons right where they're fucking releasing the next five years or they got the avengers cast at san diego i mean is that still going on i don't think so i, I that's I, why when you were bringing it up it's like what's well, the state of it? it's like well they're not really doing that anymore that, that was obviously a thing that marvel did uh, you know, you had that escalation where DC was trying to do their shared universe, and so Marvel was in, uh, constantly responding to them and usually just completely drying them out. Marvel was very successful. Anytime DC would try to announce anything, Marvel would come back and just, like, completely blow them out of the water to make them look pathetic by comparison on virtually everything they ever tried to do head-to-head, right? And so you had that competition t- throughout the 2010s, and then Marvel just completely dominated, and DC is just perpetually in this this vulnerable state. And obviously the company itself has been in a bad state for a number of years. They're just not the most solvent of companies over at Warner Brothers going through all these different owners. And, you know, usually there's like leveraged buyouts and there's all this weird fucking debt shit and everything. So DC just doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. I think that Marvel's a little concerned now that James Gunn and Peter Safran are running the place that they might finally actually have some competition. Plus Marvel, the sheen's kind of off of them to some degree. I don't think Marvel can announce the kind of slates as they used to because they stuck with the old slate for the most part. And now I don't think they're capable of doing that because they don't – I don't think they have a clear – like they have a a general idea skeleton, but I don't think they have the people that they used to have who could do that long-range planning. I think they brought a bunch of people in that aren't really comic book people. They're trying to get more film people and not deal so much with the comic book stuff. And the comic books gave them a very strong course – where to go with this, you know, at least like, again, Marvel was constantly adapting quote unquote stuff where it was super loose, where it's basically just taking the concept, but the concept still worked within the continuity of the Marvel universe. And they could pick the stuff that worked and pick the stuff from that that worked. And then they can elaborate upon it and still keep people on track where now 
it, they think I think they thought that they could get away with anything at that point. I think that they just thought that they had the Midas touch at that point. And they don't have a clear this is leading up to Thanos. This is leading up to such and such. I think that they know that they're leading up to Secret Wars. And I think that they're leading up to a, a basically a universal reboot at some point, which I've been predicting for a long time. And the, the time frame just keeps expanding and expanding. But beyond that, I think it's extremely loose. I think that they keep throwing shit against the wall to see what's going to stick in terms of what characters are going to be popular. And, and they don't know who's going to be popular necessarily. And I think they think that certain people are popular because they did okay in like pandemic era. And then they're trying to pull that shit off again. A few years later, the market's changed. I don't think you're going to have like a Captain Marvel get a billion dollars ever again because you're not going to have that bump since it's been since 2018, since they had a movie that everybody could rally around and you're super excited about. And so they don't know where they're going to go and they keep changing plans behind the scenes and Armor Wars becomes a t- goes from a TV show to a movie and then this movie doesn't come out at all and all this fucking bullshit. So they don't have the, the long range planning to do that and they don't have the incentive to do that because then you can call them on changing their plans. But if DC has a loose plan and DC is a real competition, there are another real com- com- competitors out there. You know, the, it used to be you have, you have like a dark universe and, you know, the Chinese were going to help fund a valiant universe and all this other bullshit. And none of that came to be. And now Marvel's just trying to make sure that they continue to be Marvel as best as possible. I, there's just no long range planning on that front. So I think the COVID really destroyed the old school model for conventions especially things like san diego comic-con where everybody would show up and everybody be in this competition what you're seeing more of is things like dc fandom and like you've got different people trying to like have be the the bell of the ball at a particular con and so the the events are being spaced out more the announcements are being spaced out more and really there isn't a huge incentive to do this stuff at a con anyway Uh, it, it maybe makes it too big of a deal where you can just drop a trailer and see people like it or they don't like it and you don't have that huge investment and you can kind of sweep it under the rug if it doesn't go over well where at a con you're kind of stuck with well here's the winners and losers of sdcc so they just don't compete like that anymore and so the cons have lost out on that ability to be like kingmakers to some degree where it's like everybody showed up and there's winners and they're losers now it's all spread out and really to some degree they're all losers because only so many movies are playing in theaters now anymore anyway there's only certain types of movies and even the big too big to fail type movies sometimes are failing now that it's like i don't think that they need the extra performance anxiety of showing up to a con and trying to make a big splash it's just easier to drop a trailer see if it goes over if it doesn't go over try to let the stink you know waft away and then put out another trailer that hopefully gets people more on their side so uh, so uh the consensus, though, do we think that I know obviously the pandemic, like you mentioned, put a huge uh, dent in all I mean, massive cracks in the live venue, you know, convention sort of scene. But, you know, a lot of that stuff snapped back like, you know, oh, yeah. Restaurants, oh, yeah. well, right. Restaurants snapped yeah. back bigger than ever. And, and so that's what I'm I, is you you attend more conventions. Oh yeah, well, okay. Uh, Mr. Like, fix it, and I do. So that that was like, from your perspective, do you do you think? I mean, obviously, it's not going to return to Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth are here in the building to announce movie slate, right? Where mm-hmm. people are sneaking cell phone clips of trailers mm-hmm. and things like that. Which is that, that which may is be another gone. problem too. Is it? it yeah. They don't want to lose control of the narrative. They want to be the ones who decides when things go out and how they're going to be received by you know. They're not going to test it at San Diego anymore. They're going to have a small test audience with NDAs and everybody's being watched on camera. And then they'll going to go from there. They'll, they'll test it in house. They're not putting it out to the public to test anymore because it, it blows up in their faces too often and they, they can't 
risk it anymore. Right, right. So, so my point is to get back to the convention and away from the movie side. Do we think conventions are just kind of returning to what they used to be? Absolutely. Or Absolutely, is yeah. is there a? Okay, that's that's why I, I, I actually I can lay this out for you. Like me and my partner were very careful about COVID, and so far, thankfully, we've yet to ever come up positive with COVID, right? And so we've we've always taken precautions. We we still wear masks. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I still, even on the job, I'm still wearing a mask, you know, so I'm, I'm real careful and I decide very, uh, calculated in a calculated manner, whether or not I'm going to go to a convention and how I'm going to be at that convention. And so pretty much after I went to the last, my last convention right before COVID in February of 2020, nothing else in the year 2020. I don't believe I did anything in 2021. And then we started, you know, as we started getting vaccines, I, I would kind of test the waters going into 2022. And one of the things that had happened right before COVID is I, I'd become aware of like horror conventions. Like I'd, I'd wanted to go to Living Dead Weekend since like, I think 2016, 2018, something like that. And yeah, I kept getting foiled and kind of threading out from there. I noticed there were more and more of these horror shows you could go to and trying to see like, you know, people from that particular movie that I wanted to try to find is like, Oh, this person is at the show. Oh, there's a whole show just for horror stuff. And I'm a comic book guy, but I'm also a horror guy and I've never really scratched that itch with horror that much. And so once the cons started coming back, I basically targeted horror shows. Like I'm just, this is going to be my year of doing horror cons and seeing how that works out. And so the first one I went to was in, um, what is the name? Bastrop, Texas is this little thing called the cult classic, uh, fan convention or something like that cold classic convention right and it was it was all a horror show and this is this it, the thing that was ended up appealing about it it was just halfway between houston and dallas so two hours there two hours back about a four-hour one-day drive and then whatever time you want to spend at the con while four hours on the road isn't fun we can do that going one way to dallas and it can be a round trip from bastrop so it's like let's try it out and figuring that it's going to be a smaller show that won't be heavily attended you know we'll be able to get away with it without it being a major problem especially for our first show back and again, this was early in 2022. So we get the Bastrop, and it's a Bastrop Convention Center is fucking nothing. It's a little bitty thing, right? It's it's, I mean, it's not a, it's it's big, maybe bigger than a high school gym, but not by a lot, right? And so we get to this thing, and it's a pretty decent show considering how far out in the boonies it is. Uh, it, it's just that like apparently this was one of the first shows that uh, Bill, um Joe Bob Briggs had done, I think, and so there, or maybe it's just because it was a Texas show. So he had this huge line that literally bisected the fucking convention you had to walk <laughs> through this line every time like threading a needle through this line to get to from aisle to aisle you just kept running into this line right and it was fucking packed like it was concerning how packed it was no giving that we had gone to nothing we had not seen like movies with other people hardly or or at all at that point and we're in this packed auditorium essentially full of people and it's like we were both a little frightened by that and so we didn't stay long. We only stayed maybe a couple hours and it, it was like body to body. It was just pretty ridiculous. So that prepared us. Cause like, okay, if we've got this many people at this bumfuck show, this one that's got, we got coming up the Texas Frightmare weekend. I didn't know that Texas hosts one of the top, like five horror conventions in the world. Essentially. Uh, it's like this one, there's like a monster con in that California. And there's a few other ones here and there, but it's, it's in the top five. And it's usually toward the front of the top five. I had no idea. And I've been missing this thing for years and I'd wanted to go years earlier and they did have one in 2021, but I just 
couldn't justify going to a convention that soon. It was it was too too soon. Um, so we went in 2022, and I was expecting it to be packed because of the Bass Rump show, and it absolutely was. It was again, and this is a much bigger, you know, it's still nothing compared to the George R. Brown Convention Center. It, it, that one, uh, my girlfriend compared it to like the early years of Comic Palooza when they only took up a small a section a of portion George R. Brown. of George yeah. R. Brown, right, right, right. But and in, 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 in this case, it was hosted in a hotel that was unfortunately this big uh, airplane air, airplane airport complex where you're basically having to enter an airport zone to get to the hotel. And it was a nightmare getting to this thing and parking at this thing. And then you're in the hotel and everything's kind of spread out. They don't have it like the panels are on this floor and then this room and over here. And it's just very scattershot. But it didn't matter where you went. There were people there. There was no little off out of the way place you could go we would occasionally find a spot in a corner somewhere to kind of eat and even then it was a risk because there were definitely going to be people around us you know within a few feet so it and i know that the dealers didn't expect it because when we went on on friday i'd gone i decided i wanted to have more physical media i just didn't have i i've been watching what's been happening with the streamers i always knew it was going to come to this where they're going to start fucking us and that stuff wasn't going to be available and i'm not going to pay you to rent a movie every fucking time i want to see it when i'm already paying for all these different streaming services so it's like i'm going to have more physical media so that i can have access to special features so i can have higher quality and and not worry about where i'm going to get the shit and so i went there with a mission that friday night i went and i just started hitting all the video tables whatever deals I could get. And a lot of these guys were doing like $10, you know, a, a piece for DVDs and Blu-rays, you know, like five bucks DVDs, 10 bucks Blu-rays. These are guys who are trying to make it for money that they lost during the pandemic. And I was amongst them. I was, it wasn't just me. There were a group of us. We were locusts. We would descend <laughs> on these tables. We would buy mounds of videos and we would walk away with like, they'd have to find cardboard boxes for us to carry our shit away with. And so we were wiping them the fuck out. And so Saturday and Sunday, they, their tables would be half empty or less because we bought them out already. Um, and so this year I went to, uh, again to this year and this time it was at the Irving convention center, which is a show that we've gone to several years because that was where the North Texas comic show used to be. And, uh, me and Paquita and sometimes Mr. Fix it, we'd go up there and it was a nice little show. They, they didn't have as much space for those shows. They opened it up more. They were, it was on all the, like, I think there's four floors of the Irving convention center and they opened them all up for different things. But the problem is it's sort of like a pyramid. So the, the higher up you go in the building, the less space there is until it's basically nothing once you get to the fourth floor. And I think the second floor is pretty much all a dining area. So it's not even really like a functioning floor for stuff to do. Um, and so they'd spread out amongst this thing. And so we weren't as packed. It wasn't like sardines like it was the previous year, but also my understanding is in terms of square footage, there was just more space. There were still plenty of people. You were still, it, it, it was more crowded than comic Palooza, certainly more crowded than many of the other conventions I've gone to. And definitely highly attended. And the guys had learned their lesson. The deals were not there anymore. Now their deals were more like $20 for the Blu-ray, you know, $25 to $40 for the 4K, that kind of stuff. Nowhere near as good of a deal, so they weren't getting wiped out. But I could see they were still doing good business. I could still see their stock dwindling from day to day. And so I, I'm, I'm now I've had to 
I don't I function differently at a horror show than I do at a comic book show because horror shows are more about buying stuff where comic shows for me are more about commissions and, and schmoozing and such. And I really don't do much buying until Sunday. And even then, it's mostly just I'm exhausted and I'm just biding my time until the slower artists get their shit to me. Where with these horror shows, Friday's buy day. Like, you know, it, I'm not going to go to the show if I don't make it on Friday because the, I want to get as many deals as I can that first day while everything is still stock and you're still missing stuff. Like the line went out, uh, alongside the, the Irving Convention Center, they hired Tyway. It's not a small convention center. It's not huge, but it's not small. Into the parking lot and then serpentine within the, like, sorry, the parking garage for like four or five columns. So like the first floor of the parking garage is full of people in line waiting to get into the building. And this isn't the first day. This is all three days would be this line waiting to get in. And and it was chaos too. It's not very well run. Uh, I had to get into a second line once we were getting to the door because apparently there was a line to get the bracelets so that you get back into the building. And if you didn't get your bracelet ahead of time, it was just all this stupid shit. Somebody should have been back there telling this this stuff. But the fact is that there were so many lines, there were so many people every single day that there was a lot of margin for error for that stuff because it, it, you would need a substantial support network to get things done properly with that kind of uh, turnout. So I'm not sure how some of these other shows are doing because I haven't done a lot of comic book shows. I haven't a lot of, had a lot of opportunities, but just the horror shows I've been going to are very well attended and the, the people are seemingly doing pretty good business at these things. I think that conventions are exactly the kind of thing that people who've been stuck in their houses for a long time want to do. They want to get out. They want to shop. They want to see stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I, last year it seemed like there were just an explosion of interesting conventions and I don't think that's going away anytime soon. The only thing that I do find a little questionable and troubling, I'm glad the artists are able to command more money for their commissions and certainly the pages are going for just outrageous amounts of money but i do think to some degree they're kind of pricing themselves out and i think that maybe some of it is that these guys who are getting the slabs and stuff are moving into the original artwork since that has uh you know it's a one-of-a-kind piece essentially but i also think there's a lot of dark money in the comic book art world right now and i don't know how kind of impact that's going to have on interest in shows but i know that i have a lot of work i need to get done commission wise and i have to get to some comic shows this year to do that and i'll have a better idea once i go to those shows but the only thing i'm hearing is that all the conventions all across the board are doing very well right now i don't think anybody's hurting for money at these shows nobody's going out of business running conventions right now where there were problems just a few years back because you have poorly run shows or there's maybe too many shows without enough interest now i think there's a lot of interest that's going to buoy these things for at least the next few years okay so to tee off that comment Hey, did you hear anything about Comic Palooza here in Houston this year i was well none of us went apparently i actually sent a text no. to you guys to see if anybody went and nobody went yeah, I don't think I, I, nobody went. And I heard the prices were even higher this year. Mm -hmm. you, and last year, I think they I want to say they try, were trying to justify like I want some whatever the crazy price was last year. Yeah. They were trying to justify that it was to make up for covid like as if it would right. go down. And I think it went up again. Yeah, it's like that's not a us problem. That's a you problem. What I can tell you is I did go to Comic Palooza last year. I forgot about that because I was trying to get some a few key commissions for these horror shows, because, like I said, I, I went to three or four horror shows last year. I needed some commissions for what was going to be the upcoming uh, Houston Horror Film Festival uh, to get some of those people to sign work for me, which and the, the prices were just outrageous because I, I wasn't going to the show to get the stuff done. I was talking to these people by email and the quotes online were multiple times higher than I was used to getting quoted at a show. And I, I know that some of that is just has always been the case. I've always ended up paying more, which is one of the reasons why I don't like doing that. But also, I think that just the, the quotes are higher now than they used to be pre-COVID. Uh, but I paid just ridiculous amounts of money for stuff that I don't 
I, I wasn't happy with what I uh, paid for what I was getting in some of these cases. But I wanted it because uh, I I had this whole thing where I was taking it to some of the key actors. And in particular, there was one actor that was at Colin Palooza. So I'm getting the piece that I prearranged to have done and taking it directly to the actor to get signed at that show. And again, the, the prices for signatures were ridiculous because usually if you go to a convention, in my experience, prices are usually between 20 and 40 bucks for a signature from somebody who's known, where Conclus was charging like $60 and up for signatures. So even against the regular market, they were just way too high. But when I went on that Sunday, it was pathetic. That it, it, it was just not remotely as well attended as it used to be. And just huge amounts of space were taken up by fucking art cars. Not even art cars, but just cars with wraps that were comic book themed. It was literally like a whole chunk of the George R. Brown was like a fucking parking lot. It was pathetic. But I don't think that's a convention thing. I think that's a comic palooza thing. And I think they recognize that because last year they just loaded up the bus with senior citizens from the retirement home. You know, you had nothing. Like, I think almost every guest who showed up that year was over 60. And that's not me being ageist. That's just like how many people in fandom do you really think you're going to get? As, as, for them to be a draw if it's people who haven't been working regularly or people who only work in certain things that are very niche where you want you know the, who's in the new marvel movie who's in the new uh action film you know that kind of shit this is a show that's had really named people in the past not the, the upper echelon they've never had a ben affleck or a john travolta or something or or they had a john cusack who was kind of slumming it a little bit uh in in recent years he's actually been doing cons where he hadn't before so i don't think he's he was kind of a get at the time I don't think he's much of a get now because he's done more stuff. But there's some of these guys that it's extremely rare for them to do shows. And those guys don't do Comic Palooza. Now, this year, Comic Palooza put a much greater effort in. They got a, most of the cast of The Boys, I think. They had a bunch of Marvel people, like Disney Plus TV Marvel people, not like right. big, big names. But people, like, nobody, like famous, famous to my recollection, but like a lot of people that are known within the fan circles. And just a lot of them. Like last year, literally, I think they had something like nine guests total. It was fucking. I remember embarrassing. They were, they were announcing them like two weeks before it started, and some people were dropping out. I remember, it was right. pretty, it was pretty shit. But so look, I tried to, I tried we to lost a Commander Adama and shit. It's like really, you can't get Edward James almost. You right. know? This dude does everything, you know. And that's like like Ning Na and the comic book guys from the fucking Kevin Smith uh, AMC show. You know, those fuckers just are constantly at cons. Jason Hughes is always at fucking conventions. Like, these are like the the default people who appear at every convention, it seems like. But they weren't even getting most of those guys. So it, last year, the prices were $94 for a three-day pass. This year, it was up to $110 for a three-day pass, mm -hmm. which is wild. And then per day, I think it was like 50 to 75 dollars depending on the i'm sure sunday was like 50 bucks saturday you, was I, I paid something like 60 plus dollars the sunday i went last year and you know there are conventions like, like right text right weekend is relatively inexpensive i want to say it's something like 60 bucks for the weekend i'm not sure i know the heroes con is really cheap it's something like 50 bucks for the entire weekend and 110 so, here yeah 110 right. Right. So they, they spent all that money and, and hope maybe it worked out for them. But like I said, I don't none of us went. So I, I think they've definitely priced some people out of the convention. But also the simple fact is it's not 
these people are not the draws that you know you need to be a competing convention. And also, Frank, just simply put, Texas Frightmare Weekend puts on a better show the same weekend. So I've consistently had good experiences with that show, and they consistently get good, interesting people. One of the things I think is especially special about that show is I've looked back at the years that I didn't go, and they have a huge turnover in terms of who comes in. There oh, is really? these shows where they keep bringing the same people back the same over and over folks. again. They're constantly rotating and they're constantly doing themes. Like this year's, I don't think was like the most winning themes because it was like a large portion of the casts of various John Carpenter movies because they got John Carpenter and he was the get. And then you have yeah. a lot of people that show up at a lot of these horror shows, but Old in One Place was kind of special. They got a huge number of people that were involved with. Killer Crown, Clowns from Outer Space. I think they got pretty much most of the cast of that one. Um, just a lot of stuff like that where it's like it wasn't like huge names necessarily, but getting a lot of key people. The, most of the cast of Prey was at the show, the the Predator movie. Um, all, all the big people from that one were, were at the show. Stuff like that where it's like you, you may not have like the biggest names, but they're grouped together. So it's like, oh, I'm going to do the Predator circuit. I'm going to do this circuit, you know, where and and. You would see it was, it was funny, kind of funny. It was almost like usually at conventions, I try not to wear comic book stuff because I, I just I want to, especially when I'm commissioning artists, I want to show them I'm not just some dork with a, a, my, you know, running my card around so you can sign my box full of comics and shit. I'm here to talk to you about spending a few hundred dollars and getting artwork from you. And I have reference and I'm going to give you an idea of what I would like. And we're, we're doing business. Right. And so I want to look proper for them to show that I'm not just some jerk, but in the, in the horror shows, I'm not negotiating with people. I'm just around a bunch of fellow horror fans and they really do wear their colors. And I felt when I wasn't wearing shirts and stuff, I felt kind of out of place because I'm definitely the square in that environment. You see these groups where here's the nightmare on Elm street guys, and here's the Halloween, guys and here's the a lot of terrifier guys i don't know i guess it's because of the extreme gore of that one but there were tons of and then also i guess because they've cultivated a fandom because they have strong presences at conventions and they usually come as a group and they've got a large portion of their cast as well and they have their own tables special specifically for the terrifier movies so you see people with their different colors and one of the great things about being stuck in these lines is at least i've got this conveyor belt as people are moving past me i'm just seeing shirt after shirt after shirt it's like ooh, i want that one. Oh, i like that one. Oh, that's nice uh, and we're all kind of show, flashing our colors and what what our preferences are, what our interests are. And so that's kind of part of the experience. So uh, I, I've learned my lesson this year. Next year, I'm going to come out. and I'm going to make sure I'm wearing my horror shirts because it, it's it's part of the experience is showing your fandom in a very specific way where comic book shit, you go to a comic book show and everybody's wearing shit from Walmart and Target and stuff. It's really not yeah. that big of a deal. If you got a superhero shirt, everybody's got something on and there are so many shirts out there that it's like, you know, how many Iron Mans do you have? How many Captain Americas do you have? How many Spiders do you have? It's just not super interesting. But to drill down and, oh, these are my fucking zombie guys and these are my slasher guys. It's like it really is like showing your preferences. You know, it's like I'm this kind of guy. I'm this kind of fan. And you can strike up a conversation with somebody in the line based on their shirt or their interests. So it's part of the experience. Yeah, and I think that's just a result of – you know, horror movies can never really go mainstream. Like Saw, I guess, is right. mainstream you're going to get. Whereas comic books went mainstream, right? It, mm-hmm. it, so 
I, I like if we were going to a convention back in 1997 or 1995, then I bet the T-shirt game is kind of there, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, oh, yes. they got that one out of previews. I, I tried to get that one out of previews and I didn't get it in time or whatever. Right. Um, whereas now, like I, you said, I ordered it, but they didn't actually get it for me. My stupid comic shop or that shop closed yeah. down before I got it. Everything's graffiti designs or comic images. You know, it's, there's just not a lot out there. And, and if you can find something kind of obscure, that's cool. Where you could easily find obscure shit with the horror guys. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that it, it is, it really is part of like the uh, showing who you are. It, it is expected. But I think one of the things too is horror fans are notably among the best fandoms. Um, the sci-fi guys can sometimes get a little anal retentive. There's a lot of like nitpicky griping and, and like infighting amongst sci-fi groups. Uh, so you kind of have to drill down deeper. Like maybe you want to go to just the, a Star Trek con or just the Doctor Dude, Who? Dude, that's con a thing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The the uh, sci-fi guys take sides. Yeah. There's the Star Wars camp. There's the Star Trek camp. I'm sure there's the Firefly camp. You know. Well, remember there's... Triumph the Insult Comic Dog back when the prequel yeah. were coming out, yeah. and they get somebody dressed up as Spock and walk by giving everybody the finger. You know. And we right, all have right. on it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Where with horror guys, there is sort of like we're all kind of in this together. And like, oh, you like this? Well, I like this. And like, I, I don't know. They just core guys are notable because they're just they tend to be the most polite fans. They tend to be the most agreeable. They tend to be the least critical. And they're just like everybody's kind of cool with each other because we're all have a certain kind of taste that is still never going to be mainstream. And, it's, and even like, like Megan was at the show and Megan had her people showing up, too. That's actually one of the issues I did have with the show is like it's not a family friendly show at all like you will go to tables where they've got these claymation models where they'll show like the girl from terrifier who's stripped naked and sawed with a hacksaw from the crotch down you know uh and you see that there's there's a bedspread you know so again if, if it's a like a blanket with that image on it like uh, like oh, like uh, probably maybe it was like a foreign poster or something and it's not quite as graphic as it would be on the screen it's not as graphic as the little claymation thing but it's still a naked woman with her boobies out cut in half uh and anybody who's walking by is going to see that and there were young kids there and it's like okay well these are the cool kids i hope i hope these kids aren't getting warped you know by this uh but typically i think there's something about horror that it's very uh purgatory it's it uh, purgative i guess i should say where it's like you get a lot of shit out of your system through horror like you're kind of you're facing your fears and you're facing this these darker impulses or these dark uh apprehensions and you're facing them head on and i think that there's a, a it's kind of emotionally healthy you're not like balling this stuff up you're you're getting it out of your system and you're doing something to, like set your nerves off and and get it out and so they're just kind of chill it's almost like potheads or something where you know you, if you're a horror fan you're you don't have all the shit bottled up in you and you tend to be a little bit more laid back. And there were definitely like some of these shirts where you could tell that, OK, that guy's politics aren't the same as my politics. But I guess <laughs> we, there's a little bit still of we're all in the trenches together. We're all into the gory shit. We, we know that there's a bunch of people that are going to just assume that we're like Satanists or we're all fucked in the head or we're all want to be serial killers. Stuff. We're all mutually shunned and we're all mutually ghettoized. And we're kind of cool with it because it's like this is our place. And we don't want those people here anyway. All the people who come through these doors and look at all this stuff and buy this stuff, there can't be the really hung up people. They can't be the really uptight people. They can't – you're not going to get – like I remember with Star Wars, there's a, a, a strong 
section of that fandom that is like deeply fucking religious. I caught that shit back in the 90s when I was slinging the comic books and selling the cards. There are, there's a lot of Christians who see a lot of Christian allegory in Star Wars and they just they cling to it. And like so you they so you'll have these guys who are like really uptight evangelistic type people at your Star Wars conventions, your sci-fi conventions, and those are probably going to bump up against some of these Star Trek guys that are probably more secular humanist, more intellectual, more science-based. You've got some pretty uh, resolute ideological divides there. But like horror guys were all into, oh, I want to see that fucking gore shot. And, oh, that was so cool. And this guy's chest ripped open. And even if you're not well, some of the more gory people, like the Megan people, you know, they, they that movie went out with like a PG-13 because they cut all the really gory stuff out. And I hope the kids who came to see Megan didn't see anything too fucked up while they were there. But they still watch a movie about a killer doll who's like chopping people up with uh, uh, paper cutters and shit. So they're not, they can't be too fucking hung up on shit, right? You, they kind of have to, even if they're kids, they kind of have to be the cool, chill out kids or they wouldn't be there even for Megan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's almost like if you're into horror stuff, it, it's like one of those things you can't really say it at work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like like if you're, in a, if you're in a cubicle, you're not, unless you're like the weird IT guy, you're not going to come out and be like, oh yeah, yo, I'm going to a horror con this weekend. You know what I mean? Like it's, whereas like now if you're like, oh uh, yeah, I, I like, uh, I like Marvel movies. People are like, oh yeah, you know what? You and a billion other people, like it's mm-hmm. not a big deal. But if you're like into like cult classic practical effect uh, horror movies from the seventies and eighties, you ain't talking about that at work. You know what I mean? So do you get to you get to let your uh, your freak flag fly at these uh, conventions? So I bet yeah. they go pretty hard. Well, and it is a little funny too because one of my coworkers also goes to these same cons as me, and he wears a gigantic cross, on, you know. So uh, I I definitely know he's religious. Touche. Um, but he's still in the horror stuff now. I'm not sure what horror stuff he's into, and we it's weird. We're both in the comics. We're both in horror. And I talked to him about the shows and stuff, but we never like go to lunch and talk this stuff. It's like I I just think that. I don't know. I, he, he just kind of keeps it to himself to some degree. We talk a little bit about the shows, but he doesn't really want to go into a lot of detail. Or we'll talk a little bit around the sh- like a, of a, when the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out on Netflix. We talked a little bit about that. When Prey came out, when the Hellraiser came out on Hulu, we talked a little bit about that. But we only would talk about it when there's a certain event that we were both looking forward to and, and we had that one thing to talk about. And then we just don't talk that much. And I don't know why that is. It's just how it is. Um, but he's the only person I'm going to talk to about anything else horror related. Nobody of the other people, most of the time yeah. when you talk to people, oh, I don't like that kind of stuff. Or if they do like it, they don't necessarily like the same stuff as you. And they're probably a little bit more mainstream in their tastes. Uh, they want to see, like you say, a, um, uh, one of the, uh, what you call it, the, um, conjuring movies or something like that. I, I'm totally into the walking dead. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. Or yeah. American Horror Story. I've, I've had some coworkers that are into that one too. Uh, but and I'm not into that stuff, so we don't really have that commonality because they usually like the one or two things that they like, and then they don't really have a great view on the rest of the horror sphere. Where the guys who are going to show up to these horror shows, they've seen all the shit. Even if they don't like it, they at least have an awareness by osmosis of what's going on in this this group and what's going on in that group. And to some degree, they're okay with it because even if it's their thing, it's still tangential to their thing and they're not I, like in my experience the horror guys just aren't that judgy about the different horror stuff they may not like it but they're not going to sit there and bitch about it and try to that shouldn't be in our convention like no it's everything's kind of welcome and the diversity of horror stuff you get my, my girlfriend complains because it's still largely franchise related at most of these shows you're still going to get yeah. a lot of texas chainsaw a lot of nightmare a lot of you know, stuff that's popular, you know, stuff that has a big following because you can sell a lot of shit because a lot of people are into it. But there's also always going to be the little niche stuff. 
So if you know, I, when I went to that cult classic convention, I found a Night of the Comet shirt and a, uh, uh, or maybe not a shirt. It might have been the mouse pad that I got that one, which was the mouse pad that's on my table right now that I'm using. Night of the Comet is pretty fucking niche. So amidst all the big name stuff, there's always going to be that little thing where it's like, oh, somebody, somebody who just loves it decided they had to have it on a mouse pad, had to have it on a shirt, and uh, you know, I have that community with them. And honestly, I've only been going to these things for a couple of years, but I've seen more of that niche stuff because part of what they're able to com- com- uh, uh, com- compete with each other on is, well, I've got the shirt that the other guys don't have, and and I like the. There are some people that specialize in that. We make our own shirts, we design our own stuff, we don't sell anybody else's stuff we only make our own stuff and they they're often very very specific and a lot of horror fans are like looking for that one thing where it's like i'm the guy who loves that thing and you know you might only sell 10 of those shirts but they're the only person who has it so they've cornered the market on it right okay so last question regarding cons do you have a next con you're going to that you're looking forward to i'm i'm actually vetting cons right now i I would love the, the the whole thing is this this trip is coming between uh living dead weekend celebrating the 45th anniversary of dawn of the dead where they're advertising it as the largest reunion of for any movie ever in the world's history uh they've got just dozens and dozens and dozens of different uh zombies and stuff it, the, the one problem is they keep getting three quarters of the main cast and until they get all four of the main quartet it's not going to feel complete and my hope is that by the 50th anniversary, they're able to do that. But for the 45th, they've got a ton of people showing up, and I'd love to go. But the problem is there are so many people going. It's so many people that have never had the show before. And I, what I've been doing is working on this project where I'm getting original artwork for the, the actors and performers to sign. And I just don't have enough artwork for all these people that are showing up. And I didn't even know that these, some of these people were going to show up. Some of these people were just dug up for the first time ever. And I like, like I've been struggling with, like I had the podcast for the, the Dawn of the Dead where I, I don't know who some of these people are. They're not credited. It's like, I can't talk about people who I don't know who they are. And now there's a whole bunch of people that they've identified that were bringing the show. It's like, okay, great. I actually research that person now and find out who they are and get artwork for them. So I need a bunch of artwork for that to happen. Uh, but I'm glad I'm not going to the show because I don't have enough artwork to make it worthwhile. I'd have to abandon too many people without getting them to sign anything. And that would just suck or giving them a blank piece of paper and get the artwork later on. That sucks. So it's a good reason for me not to go to that show, but a great show to have gone to, to get artwork would have been heroes con, which is the following weekend. And that's the convention where all the fire and water podcast network people are going to and such bunch of people that I haven't gotten to meet yet that, uh, that weren't at the, the previous years that I've gone to. And we got one guy in particular who's coming from Australia so it's like, fuck, I'm going to miss the guy who's coming from fucking Australia. That fucking sucks. Um, and that's a great, great, great show for artwork, especially if you're a, a comic book fan who likes stuff from the Bronze Age and the, the 90s and the 2000s, who, you know, before you had all this. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to be that uh, like all the manga stuff where we kind of took over. And you got all these guys that don't have the kind of credits and don't have the kind of legacy that the old school artists have. And these old school artists don't get invited to as many shows as they used to because there's such star fucker events where they're just going to get who's ever hot on the TV show instead of getting actual comic book people. And so I'm trying to find other shows that are similar to heroes con. And there are a few that are really uh, appealing. I've been told that Baltimore is a great con and I was looking at the, the people that were going and it is a fucking beast, man. It, it's definitely in competition with heroes con. I went, when we did a road trip, we hit Terrificon on our way to the Boston Fan Expo, and Terrificon I thought was really awesome. And uh, it's not comparable to Heroes Con, but they're getting closer this year than they were the previous time I went, and I really liked it the last time. But they seem to be stepping up their game. And uh, there's a few shows in California. California, there's a few shows in uh, Florida. 
There's a, the Chicago show looks pretty good. I'm just trying to figure out the logistics and we, we also have another trip coming up later in the year. So I got to figure out how to juggle this stuff, but those, those are the ones I'm looking at and hoping to get to 10 for, okay. We're going to, we've already gone way past how long I thought this would take. So that's good. <laughs> that's good though. No, I, I, the, my, my front loaded my questions. Cause I knew that that would be the, uh, that had the most current stuff. All right. We're going to switch over to some comic book stuff now. <laughs> what? I know. What, what are you ever going to get on any of this stuff? Is this going to be all me? No, no, this is, I just, I told you, this is, this are is you a, going an intimate evening in the next year. No, no, okay. No, no, this is an intimate evening with Diablo Frank. I'm letting you get some shit off your chest. You don't have to talk about fucking Dark Horse Presents, you asshole. Calm the fuck <laughs> down. Okay. Um, <clears throat> What comic books are you currently reading? And I don't want an entire list, but just the first few that come off the top of your head that are, that are and I don't mean, I don't know. Do I want to put this on like back issues if you're reading old shit? Obviously, you're reading Dark Horse Presents. Yeah, I have but, to read a lot of old. That's one of the things that sucks with podcasting, especially when you commit to a certain topic, is you end up reading a lot of research stuff. You're reading it for the project uh, rather than reading for pleasure. And so I've really fallen behind on my reading for pleasure stuff. Um, so I would be hesitant to, to give any recommendations right now. Cause even the stuff I like and had been reading, I'm far enough behind in now that they could have dipped in quality. I wouldn't even know it. Okay. Well, let me rephrase it. What is a creative team or not even a team, either a writer and or artist. It's a current. So don't, don't yeah, not reaching back to somebody back to that like I would know. Right. Right. Who's sort of a modern era artist and writer? Give me one of each that if you see the name, you strongly consider picking it up, even though you might have a chance to read it because you're reading Dark Horse Presents all the time. Well, I, I recently I read some stuff by Mark Russell, particularly Second Coming, which is a book about uh, Jesus Christ being reincarnated and teaming up with essentially Superman to try to figure out what to do with the world in, the, in its present state. And uh, I was really impressed by the first volume of that, and I've heard great things about some of his other work. Uh, in particular, everybody tells me how great his Flintstones uh, miniseries with Steve Pugh at DC was. But because it's you know still a licensed product, I haven't been in a big rush to check that one out. In fact, uh, it was just at Half Price Books today for like nine bucks, and I'm still like, eh, I'll get around to it. But I did get Island of Billionaires, and I'm going to check that one out. And I, I've, like I said, I've just heard great stuff about his, his work, and I'm, I'm trying to follow more of that. Uh, Joshua Williamson, before he became like the main guy writing everything for DC, was doing some really good stuff over at Image, and he's still doing good stuff over at Image. I haven't had a chance to read Dark Ride yet, but I was following uh, Birthright, and that was an excellent book with gorgeous, gorgeous artwork. And the same team is going to be doing Dark Ride. Uh, I have not quite finished that one yet, uh, I, so I need to get, I, I need to go ahead and finish that volume. But I really enjoyed it uh, on both fronts. Uh, just an excellent bit of work. Um, I still need to finish Low. Uh, which was Rick Remender. That was the book that turned me around on Rick Remender. I used to hate his stuff because I felt like he was writing everything for a future screenplay. And uh, Lowe's just a, this really excellent fantasy story, uh, underwater story. Uh, really great artwork on that one too. Super fucking dark, very Game of Thronesy. I was really enjoying that. I need to get, and also I really enjoyed his Deadly Class, uh, which has completed, and I, I again lost the throw on that one. I need to get back to that one. But I, I was thoroughly enjoying that one. Um, know that's pretty good. That's decent little worse, right? Well, we have yeah, to go that was good. Stuff. That was good. I really okay. need to get back to Adam Warren's Empowered too, because that that reached a really a fever pitch where I left off. It was it was super excellent, and they just killed off a, an important character that was uh, having repercussions throughout the series. And then I, I lost the thread. It's been several years now, and I've continued to buy it, but I haven't read it. And I'm thinking about going and just restarting that one. But uh, that that is 
one of the most expansive universes in modern comics. And, you know, this the, the fact that this started out as a bunch of TNA drawings for commissions and stuff, and it turned into a series that rivals, like, Kirby's Fourth World in terms of the ima- imagination and the world building that go- has gone into it. And it also it manages to be extremely well-drawn, extremely well-written, very funny, but also, I think, most importantly for me, very um, tense. Like, it's a book that you feel like has real stakes and really bad things can happen if things go the wrong way. And it, it, a lot of superhero stuff feels very safe and boring. And especially, like, they just recently killed off a, a major character that's about to be in a movie. And it just feels so low stakes and stupid and all, and just, like, uh, a fucking trolling, essentially. Because you know that character's going to be back almost immediately. Um I, I got so sick of comic books where nothing ever happens and nothing ever is permanent. And so when you're reading a book where it has true stakes, um, the, very much worth reading. Also, I, I got to give a shout out to Paper Girls, uh, Brian, K, Brian K. Vaughn and, and Cliff Chang. I've been really bad about remembering who the artists are, but Chang's just a, such an exceptional artist and so important to the mix on that book. Also had a really excellent adaptation, very loose adaptation at Amazon Prime. Unfortunately, they didn't continue with it. And so it ends on a cliffhanger. But the TV series was also really good. And I'd like to talk about that someday as well. But and that's another one where I've read a lot of it, but still haven't finished it. I need to go finish some stuff, then we can maybe cover it on one of the other podcasts. Okay. Especially because Fix It um, has watched the Paper Girl TV show, from what I understand. Oh, And I, I think he read the comics as well. And it's like, well, we should probably oh, have a conversation. Shit. And it just hasn't happened yet. Okay, so so the back end of that question would then be, is there anything that you have ordered or anticipating ordering that you're looking forward to, even though you may not get to read it for four or five years because you're reading Dark Horse Presents all the time? Well, uh, again, getting back to the Mark Russell thing, he wrote a, min- a Superman miniseries with Mike Allred called The Atomic Age. And I was going to I, I, I've got it on my shelf. I just haven't quite gotten around to reading that one yet, but I'm really anticipating it because it's it looks like exactly the kind of Superman story that I want to read. The My my feel for that character, it seems to be manifest in that book and everybody has nothing but great things to say about it. So I'm really looking forward to reading that one. Uh, and um what else am I looking forward to right now? Again, there's so little I get to read for pleasure that it'd be hard for me to name anything else right off the top well, of my head. Said, th- th- this is more like that you've ordered that you remember. Pl- you're like, oh shit, I'm picking this up, and you haven't received it yet. It's, or, it's really, it's I, like I just it's, it's been in a previews only. Age. Yeah. That's that's one. I also I really want to get around to reading the Alex Ross Fantastic Four a graphic novel Full Circle. That one isn't quite as heavily pl- praised, but it just looks really cool. And I, I, I'm just waiting for a, a reason to read a new Fantastic Four story, like maybe when they finally start to announce what they're going to do with it in the MCU, which seems imminent. Uh, then I can maybe read that ahead of that. And maybe we could do a podcast about a comic book instead of a movie for a change. Uh, and uh, that would seem like a really good one to read because Fantasy Four is one of those properties that like, I'm not willing to sit there and go through the entire fucking um, what's his face. Um, the guy who was doing that book, he, the guy who did secret wars. What's his name? Uh, Mr. Graphic design guy. Anyway, I'm not willing to to commit to 36 issues of Fantastic Four. I needed to be bite-sized, and I needed to be epic and justify using those characters and doing cosmic shit. And it seems like Alec Ross did a good job with that with Full Circle, so I'm really looking forward to read that one. But that's not one I'm anticipating getting. I've got it. It's just on the shelf waiting for me to get around to reading it. Okay, gotcha. Okay, final question here, and now we're we're reaching too long territory for this podcast. But um, you have long throughout it's documented now for how long are we doing this podcast Since, we're going uh, up going 10 years 2012 right uh no 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 2013, no, 2013. Uh, no 2014 okay all right yeah because our first one of our first episodes was for the guardians of the galaxy which hasn't quite hit 
its 10th anniversary yet. That's going to be next year. And we got a few episodes out before Guardians came out. But I want to say it was like, because we the same year the Guardians came out, the Winter Soldier came out. And I tried my best to get us to do a show by the time Winter Soldier came out, and it just didn't happen that way. So it ended up coming out, I think, the summer of that year. Um, so coming up on 10 years now. Gotcha. So for coming up, up on 10 years, you've, you were documented oh, uh, and, and, by, by saying, the way, it related to yeah. that, uh, the next uh, Marvel sure. podcast, we should probably go ahead and do Iron Man three. Cause we're already a little bit late on the 10th anniversary on that one. Oh shit. It came out in May of, uh, 20, uh, 2013. So we're, we we're a little behind to? on that one. And that's entirely my fault. I used to keep up with that stuff, but I, a lot of stuff kind of fell by the wayside this year in particular. And so I missed it, but I think that's probably the next Marvel Rules podcast should be Iron Man three. Okay. Sounds good. Um, where was I? Oh yeah. So you, you have constantly said doom and gloom for the printed comic book industry and it still hasn't happened. Do you think it's kind of leveled out and fl- no. flat, not no. flatlined or do you think it's still in a full on meteorite barreling towards through the atmosphere towards earth? I have four colors in my blood. I, 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 I am like a religious devotee to this medium. I just am not willing to let it go over the span of my entire lifetime. And so any other medium that was in as bad a shape as the comic medium is would not still be here. I I think it's just one of those situations where the people that are involved with comics that are still involved with comics love it so much that they just will not let it fucking die. Uh, And I, and I like, I doomsay so much and I, I think it bears out like, Oh, you've been saying the comic industry has been horrible for years and years. Like, do you know what the print runs are these days? You you tell me, what do you think like a top selling book, uh, what the print run would be on top selling book right now? I don't I feel like I'm going to go low. I would say 50, 50, uh, I guess Batman and X-Men maybe still or whatever. 70. I think they're closer to like 25, 30. No fucking way. Really? Right. So like, like take something like Savage Dragon, which is one of the longest uh, comic books in existence by the same creator. Uh, it's over 250 now. I think that book sells something like four to 6,000 copies at this point. And so it's clear that the only reason why that book exists is because Eric Larson does most of it himself, or he's got fans who help him to do stuff or, or do it at a very low price. And he just barely managed to keep this thing in color and, and keeping it coming out. Um, so that's the kind of numbers you're talking about. You're like independent books, you know, anywhere from a few thousand copies to maybe 20,000 ish, you know, on the higher end of stuff. The, 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 on average, I think that, uh, uh, your mainstream DC Marvel stuff is somewhere in the realm of 20,000, 15, 20, 25,000, somewhere in there. I think a, a popular book like a Batman or a Spider-Man, I think on a monthly basis without it being some kind of event is probably in the realm of 40 to 60,000. And I think that's probably on the high end. If I think I'm probably highballing that at this point. So it's like when you think like what in this world sells a few thousand and and people are good with that. You know, it's like the industry in, in terms of being a force, it's it's just nothing anymore. It's it's all about just the the love that the people who are still involved have for it. Because as a commercial interest. There's nothing there. I, you're maintaining brands, you're maintaining IP, trademarks, copyright, stuff like that. It makes sense to me that you've got 
uh, all this other stuff to ameliorate those costs. But it's like on a, on a practical level, it just makes no sense that Warner Brothers is still in the comic book business, that Disney is still in the comic book business. I, I don't. And, and for years, people have talked about, you know, them just licensing their stuff to other publishers. Um, but, you know, why would you lose that control, you know, that creative control? You know, like they've already got the machine in place, so they, they keep it going. But they slashed uh, tons of jobs at, D- at DC during the AT&T merger. They slashed a bunch of jobs at Marvel. Um Everybody's leaving, like they're going through alternative distributors now. Like uh, Image Comics is now going to be distributed uh, by uh, Lunar, which is the same company that distributes DC stuff. And Lunar is basically like a side project. Well, I think at this point it might be the main project of the people who own the the discount comic book service, the the number one mail order service in the North America. Uh, Marvel has been with uh, a Penguin. To distribute their stuff to comic shops and to uh, bookstores. Um, there's always it, it, so like the previous catalog at this point with Image leaving, it's like yeah, and, and Dark Horse is no longer in their premium publishers. It's just one of the regular like they've got this weird stratification where you've got like three or four different sections before you get to like the basic bitch comic books, or just the, the the plain Jane comic books. And Dark Horse is, is in the section before plain Jane's now. IDW is in that place as well. They just recently uh, slashed a bunch of jobs and uh, had their publisher get fired or their uh, the editor in chief get fired. Uh, they lost pretty much all the Hasbro stuff. So what they've got keeping them going is like Teenage Mutant. Mutant Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers, and uh, some of the more popular creator-owned, or uh, I'm not sure if they're fully creator-owned, because I think IDW gets a piece of that. Um, and then Dark Horse, it's basically Hellboy and uh, Black Hammer and a few li- uh, licenses. They apparently do well in trade paperbacks and bookstores. They don't do well in comic book shops anymore. Um, so the, the people who are at the front of the catalog are like artists, writers, artisans, the AWA, uh, uh, you've got Dynamite, you've got, um, I'm having trouble just remembering, Boom, which Boom is co-owned, Boom was partially owned by Fox, and then Fox was bought by Disney, so Boom is now like a, almost like a, it's not a Marvel subsidiary, but it's a Disney subsidiary, so it's almost like Marvel Plus, or like, you know, like a, a like they're the Hulu to Mar- Marvel's Disney Plus, right? Um, you got like boom, you've got who else? Like I, I have trouble even remembering who all is in there anymore. Um, and of course a huge chunk of the catalog is now novelties. If you go to comic book shops, clearly comic books are on the walls and people are still buying individual comic books, but the back stock is almost meaningless and pretty much blown out at a buck a piece when they bother with keep back stock at all. And at least half the store is, is statues and and funko pops and action figures and what have you um comic shops they get a steady stream of money from the comic books and the people that are that are old school collectors but i I really feel like we're dying out and the numbers show that we've been on a downward trend forever the trades may sell the properties may have value but as an industry it's we're like we're almost like a fucking vanity project at this point um so it's weird because it's like it's easy to call bullshit on me and say I'm a Cassandra or I'm a, I'm, I'm Chicken Little saying the sky's falling, but it's like what sky? Like we're we're like fucking we're Argo City. We're floating in fucking outer space, waiting for the fucking air to to run out or the kryptonite poisoning to kill us. It's like it, there's no practical reason for a comic industry to continue to exist with the kind of numbers we have, aside from there just being such a deep love from the people who are still a part of it. But 
we're going to die out eventually. So it's just like, how much longer can we, how we're getting to the point where we're getting to $5 comic book, $5 floppies. Like how long is that really sustainable? What the value versus the entertainment, you know, and, and the, the actual inherent value of the, the physical object when you've got like, uh, uh, the, uh, the Marvel Unlimited and uh, DC Infinite and all that kind of shit. And a lot of the old school guys are perfectly happy to just buy a few things or not buy anything and just get everything on their tablet. I, I just don't know. I don't know how we're continuing to sustain now. I don't know how we were really sustaining ourselves 10 years ago. And I, I can't imagine what's going to happen 10 years going forward. But the fact that the diamond monopoly has broken up and pretty much everybody's gone to do these stuff with these different book groups uh, for various forms of distribution so they can get a bigger chunk of the money that's still being made. Obviously, these movies are being made, A, for power, sure, but also because they don't want to give as much money as they have been to Diamond. They know their their prices are untenable, so they want to claw back some of those discounts and make more money off of each of those comic books without having to raise the price anymore, which, again, seems like a desperation play to me. Uh, I, I, I just don't see the sustainability. And I think part of it, too, is honestly what keeps a lot of people in the industry is companies like Discount Comic Book Service where you're getting those books for 40%, 50% off cover price. So you're not paying $5. You're paying $250, which isn't so bad, but it used to be you'd pay $250 and get a discount off that ideally. But a lot of people are used to like bullshit 10% discounts anyway. So what's a quarter off of $250? Oh, I'm only paying $225. I got a, somebody who has a stable income, you know, middle-aged person who is probably earning the most money they've ever learned in their life can probably afford to pay 250 for a floppy but for how much longer and if you've got the companies trying to claw back those discounts well that's eventually going to claw back the discounts for the mail order services as well and the 50 percent is going to become 45 percent is going to become 40 percent so at some point it's still going to catch up with the, the readership where it gets to the point where you're spending 50 dollars a month 100 dollars a month 200 dollars a month but you're getting less for that until you just stop Especially since there are so many options to read the books without having any physical copies. Honestly, too, there's plenty of people. It's just a space issue. Like they, I, I was watching a video from a guy who took part of this uh, crossover event we had in May where he was the only guy who did video. Everybody else was doing podcasts. And he had a garage full of aluminum shelves full of short boxes and long boxes. It took up his entire garage. He's got a library of, of long boxes and stuff. And it's like I couldn't – I can't surrender an entire fucking garage to my comics. I wouldn't want to. I don't want to have that many boxes around. I recently took all my shit out of boxes and put them in bookshelves because I can't stand to handle comic book boxes anymore. It's like PTSD from the comic shops. I just don't want to <laughs> touch the fucking box anymore. So if I get it on the shelf, then I can get to it easily and it looks nicer and I feel like I've got a library instead of a bunch of fucking storage and um, when I run out of shelf space, I'm going to start getting rid of comic books. I've already been setting aside comic books that I don't need anymore. And since I prefer having a hardbound edition on a bookshelf as opposed to a bunch of fucking bags and boards and stuff, what I do is every time I buy a collection, I take the comic books out of off the shelf and I put them in a box with the intention to give them away, sell them, donate them. I don't know. I've not yet decided what to do with them. But I'm going to do something with them because at some point I'm just going to be tired of storing them. Uh, I, I've never been a, a pack rat. I've never been a person who values – I look, I've got the first edition signed by so-and-so. I don't give a fuck. As long as I've got a physical copy I can pull off shelf and read comfortably without having to rely on a computer to do it, I'm happy. So I'm trying to push as much of that shit out as I can, and I know there's lots of other people. You get to a point where you physically can't pick up the box anymore. Like you got guys in their mid-60s, 70s still trying to be comic collectors, still trying to uh, haul those boxes around. At some point, you're just not going to be physically able to do it anymore. And if you don't have a kid that's willing to help you with that shit, 
then fucking, I don't know, does it go to a landfill? Does does it get donated to somebody? Does somebody come in there and get their new Mile High collection where they're just buying all this shit from you and taking off or buying it from your widow, you know, your your children, your estate? Right. Uh, I don't know what happens to all this shit. I don't know at what point, too, the comic books become Elvis memorabilia. I think we talked about this in the past where you used, used to have all these plates and all this high-end stuff related to Elvis you could buy, and you had these collectors that just filled their houses. My, what, I go to an eye doctor on occasion who is an Elvis fan. His whole practice is full of Elvis shit. But what they found is in recent years, the people who gave a shit about Elvis are dying off, and there isn't a new generation. That's part of the reason why they did the Baz Luhrmann movie and why they've been why they pushed the Elvis ones 20 years ago, and they try to find ways of making Elvis cool again, which is harder than it is with say the Beatles or something because Elvis's sound is nowhere near as contemporary he was dated in the 70s he, he was too country too corny back then where the beatles at least have a timelessness to them and a, a, a breadth of influence that elvis doesn't have so the people who care about elvis just aren't around that much anymore so like i may treasure my run of blue devil comic books but i'm not expecting anybody else to and when i'm gone that shit gets fucking recycled or something you know um at some point this stuff it's going to be the slabs the slabs will end up outliving us all and what the modern collectors are doing, especially the ones that are younger, younger generations, they just want the keys. And especially the people who come in, oh, I love Deadpool so much. I want Deadpool's first appearance. So I'm going to pay $500 to get a 9.0 slab. And then I'll put that on the wall and I'll be able to tell everybody I've got the first fucking Deadpool. It's like, well, the first fucking Deadpool sold probably half a million fucking copies. So you're not exactly in rarefied company, chump. Um, but he's got a slab and it's it's uh it's high end and you can go on eBay and you go to these certain sites and it tells you that it's worth such and such and so you can brag about how much it's worth to your friends and you just line your slabs up on a shelf and show ooh look at my fucking art collection you know um and that's that, that's what comic books are now if they're not the high high rated slab pristine perfect Smithsonian ready fucking comic books a lot of people just don't want them anymore. And they used to be people would get the, a low-grade copy because they wanted to finish out their run of, a, of an older book, and that's what they could afford. And I just don't think there are nearly as many of those people anymore. That's why you can go to some of these comic shops, and you're pulling shit out of their 50-cent bins, dollar bins that you'd consider to be good shit. But it's like, yeah, but to who? You know, right. it, it, how much does this matter to, you know, the, the people who aren't octogenarians, you know, the people who aren't fucking losing all their hair and their backs are going out and they're they're taking their meds on a daily basis. It's like, do I get my diabetes medication or do I get, you know, uh, uh, Superboy number 23 to finish out my collection? You know, it's like those are the that's, that's what we're getting to at this point. You know, so who's going to be here for this shit? It's just going to be those keys that are going to continue to hold their value. And a lot of this other stuff is going to fall by the wayside, I think. Well, I was hoping to end the podcast on a higher note. I you thought you were going to say it's kind of leveled out. Nah, you're the wrong fucking dude. I feel like manga uh, still will keep no, – actually, like, no, manga, no, manga really fucking – like there's a lot of manga still being produced and a lot of people who are fans who are still buying the stuff. But it's there was a time period where it was really hot and it was selling all over the place. Most places, even bookstores have been getting out of manga. It's really? like they don't – You know, maybe it's – maybe, maybe for me it's the amount of anime I see on yeah. – Netflix. Oh yeah, no, there's but tons like of anime. Tons, That's, tons of anime. Yeah, it, 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 there, there's no shortage of otaku out there. The thing is, they don't necessarily want to buy a brick of black and white paper. You know, they they Darn. want to see. That's one of the things. Is like one of the reasons why we read comic books is because there was nothing like comic books. And we just talked about how uh, Edge of Spider or sorry, uh, uh, Across the Spider Verse is so drenched in the comic book stuff that we more so than anything we've ever seen before in our lives. And it's so much easier to just watch the movie and like this perfect version of a comic book than to actually collect 
you know, the 45 issues of various Spider-Verse books that have come out, you know? So <clears throat> we won. The the geek stuff is what reigns in, in media today, but the medium by which we became fans is increasingly irrelevant. And if you can stream it on Netflix and Hulu and wherever, why would you bother with this artifact of an older time? I mean, people, they read, but mostly they read stuff on you know, like they, they read microblogs, they read text messages. They don't read a lot more than they have to. They would rather watch the YouTube video. Uh, it's just, it's a, it, why would you go for this stilted, silent, limited way of communicating? I like the intimacy of it. But of course, I also grew up with people that loved books and hated comic books because books were so much deeper, more involved, more descriptive. You're seeing the pictures in your mind, so it's more immersive. And of course, I love comic art, comic artists. I like the, the brevity of the storytelling. I like that I can get something like a complete story in 22 pages that I can read in a relatively short amount of time. I love the medium, but I think that what most people love about the medium is bettered in other media and certainly cheaper so why would why would you want to deal with this artifact of an older time? You know, so and and again, I, I was recently talking to folks about how I don't give a shit about comic strips, like because I love the way the comic books communicate. I always tried to read newspaper comic strips and I like a gag strip. I used to like Robot Man. I liked Mother Goose and Grimm. I liked For Better or Worse, which is a little bit more of a dramedy. But like you know, most of the like the phantom or or the spider-man strip that should have been my zone and that she was so boring and so slow moving and the art didn't really grab me and i just like i try to like flash gordon i try to like the phantom i like elements of them but most of what i like about them came from like the movies the cartoons defenders of the earth not the actual comic strips and i see that the, the modern generation probably feels the same way about comic books it's like comic books are almost like the prototype like we they they fucked it up so many times and and gotten rid of messed up this character and then they gotta go back and fix it and all this kind of stuff. They've laid the blueprint for the adaptations and the adaptations cut out the crap and just give you the good stuff and they deliver it in a very exciting way with great music and great actors and uh, you know they distill it down to a motion picture or they uh, expand it into a TV series. Uh, Invincible is a good example of that. I've read the Invincible comic books. I'm not a big fan of the comic books. I love the cartoon. The cartoon's great. I think it just betters the comic books. And, and a lot of stuff I didn't like the comics. They just knew better than to deal with that stuff. They just cut it out and they they amplified the good and they they diminished the bad. It's a way better cartoon than it was a comic book. If I can see that as a comic book person, and then you're looking at having to read a bunch of shitty '60s Silver Age crap to get up on like this particular character, or you can just watch a great multi-million dollar movie that everybody loves, watch the fucking movie, you know, watch the cartoon based on the movie that takes away, it doesn't bother with all this dumb comic book shit. It's just, it's not that the stuff we love, the, the IP that we love, the universes even like it used to be, we were lucky to get a Batman or a Superman in a movie. And now we've got whole universes and the fucking talking raccoons have are part of the universes and shit. You know, we've got everything that we love about comic books in other media now, so it's kind of a vestigial thing. It, it doesn't matter that we lose comics to some degree. I still love the artists. I still love the storytelling. I still see the value in creating new comic books. I don't see as much value in creating new comic books for DC or Marvel. I really wish more people would just go ahead and do their own stuff without those limitations. But it's just there's still so many of the people that are so conservative in their mindset that if it's not the characters they grew up on, they're just not interested. If it's not part of the universe that they dedicated their lives to, they're just not interested so I just don't know how financially viable that is. I want 
original creators to exist and to have the opportunities that you have in comics to have the creative freedom, but it's still always limited by commercial interests. So we only have so much to offer here. So you can have a Noelle Stevenson go and she might struggle to get her movie adapted uh, and Disney may cancel it and Netflix have to pick it up because it's got gay stuff in it and they don't like it. But eventually that movie gets made and probably that movie is going to mean a lot more to a lot more people than any comic book ever could have. So just embrace the fact that we won. We're part of the culture. We're an accepted part of the culture. You don't necessarily need a comic book anymore. I do, but not everybody else does. Yeah. And you know what? It, it's such a, uh, it's such a labor intensive process. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to say that it maybe it'll continue on like vinyl, right? Mm-hmm. Like where, where you're making the vinyl, you're making the the Spotify upload. I almost said MP3. I don't even really know if it's fucking MP3 anymore, right? So no, you're making it's, all, the it's streaming all streaming media. now. Nobody does MP3s anymore right. but me. Uh, so so you're you're already creating the streaming product. You're really making your money from touring again, uh, not off the, the. And then you know they can take that streaming file and throw it on on a vinyl record and some mom and pop shop can press a thousand records for you, you know, and, and make them kind of custom. And that's all they got to do. But they're the ones making all the custom records for all of the bands that want to do vinyl. Right. Whereas like comic books, you got to have an artist, you got to have a writer, you got to have a, somebody who's willing to print this shit. You know what I mean? There's so much just like specific people, uh, cogs in the process it's hard to say. We know vinyl came back, so maybe comic books will come back. I'm not yeah. so sure, but I, I hope you know maybe it'll just concentrate down, um, and you know maybe it goes reverse. Maybe it turns from you know where Marvel used to have to license off their characters for movies. Well, maybe the the movie properties will be licensed out to comic book, right? To, to mm-hmm. creators that will write an Iron Man comic book for him. So, and they just do it on their own. Right. And, and it'd be kind of hilarious to come for full circle that way, but um, maybe that's an alternative to kind of keep the stuff going. I don't know. I, I think, I think what it is, you know, we love our pen and our ink and we love when it's done on a piece of paper and it gets printed that we're tactile generation. Right. I think that we're seeing the cost and the barriers to doing things like animation uh, being overcome. I think in the next 10, 20 years, you're going to have a lot more people figuring out how to do what they do in animation and being able to create stuff without having to rely on a studio to do that. Uh, you've got collectives like the guys who did Ben 10. I don't remember their name off the top of my head, but it was a bunch of comic book guys that got together and started doing animation stuff and seemed to have done quite well for themselves. And they were still having to work within the old system where you have to have something like Cartoon Network to support you. But going forward, you've got so much stuff being able to be done in uh, CGI or uh, computer-aided animation that's more like cell animation and people who like that kind of thing. Um, I, I think you're just going to see a greater access to that and a, a, a ability for people who would have been combo creators to just tell their stories in a different medium economically. It's so much cheaper to film movies now than it used to be. Uh, Animation is getting easier to do. I just think they're going to take those type of stories they used to do in comics and do them someplace else and get a wider audience as a result of that. I, I, I was going to say, but the the you know you kind of just hit on something that you know I've heard of, you know obviously AI is a hot topic right now, but there is and, and I'm not trying to cliche that maybe AI can write comic books, but I think the more practical. Uh, application of ai in possibly saving the comic book industry is that if you're an artist you can literally you know put samples of your art style 
into a program and then tell it what you want the panels to look like. And that's a huge way to save down on labor, save time on labor, but it will still be your style that the AI has to use, right? Like you have to, you have yeah, to I, I think the AI. lawsuits are going to kill all the AI artwork because it's too easy to show that they're basing, they're swiping essentially. And it's again, it's literal copying. It's not like, you Oh, know, I'm homaging. Nobody's actually drawing it. No, but, but I'm saying right though, I, I think the lawsuits, there are going to be uh, class action lawsuits that I think are going to kill the AI artwork. But what I do think happens is you get an artist who draws one panel and then they draw another panel and then the computer gets from one place to the other place using various frameworks to get, you know, that, that they're already doing that where you, you don't have to you used to be, you'd have to draw every single frame, but now you can draw two or three images and then the computer will fill in the gaps to get from point A to point uh, from point A to point D, you know, where you're only drawing part of it. I think that's more likely to happen. And yeah, you're right too. You could have somebody who has a, a vast body of work and feed it into a computer, but it's still a little bit tricky because, I think it's going to be easier for companies to do that because they're going to have the rights to larger libraries that will allow them to do more stuff because they have a broader database. But you're going to see more and more that the AI will continue, but I think they're going to have to make sure that it's AI that you own the copyright to. You can't go and decide you're going to take every Frazetta off the internet and draw something like a Frazetta where you can clearly see where the computer was driving from things that you don't hold the copyright to. But if you're DC Comics and you can feed you know, a a ton of animation into a computer and create a new season of the Superman adventures or Batman, the animated series or something where they hold all the copyrights. You know, there is still some argument about residuals and whether or not the people who worked on the stuff the first time have a right to uh, monies for that. But it's a lot more clear cut than where you're just fucking taking whole pools of images that you don't have any rights to and creating supposedly new material out of that. So I just think it's going to become a little bit more, uh, legally uh, friendly uh, for the bigger companies to do that kind of stuff. But there's still tools there that will allow smaller artists and smaller collectives to still do that type of stuff. They're just going to have to work a little bit harder at it, but they'll also have more versatility. And uh, this is their hands-on. They'll be able to create more genuine, more affecting stories for their times and for their audience than you can get from just throwing a bunch of shit into a computer and telling it to spit something up. I mean, that, that's all I was kind of saying is, is that can be a tool that's, solves the 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 dollar and labor intensive side of creating a comic book from start to finish and i don't mean Mm -hmm. like you know you're dropping a photo in the but you know how how they were doing that bullshit for a while when Mm -hmm. computers first came around where it's like oh i draw a picture of this guy flying in front of a you know a city and they literally just took a fucking city and drop it behind like i'm not talking about that kind of bullshit um because that's annoying that's 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 cutting corners, right? I'm saying not mm-hmm. necessarily cutting corners, but if you're one creator, it's easier for one creator to to write and draw and color his book. These are steps that can make that easier to do and maybe a little more viable than saying, I got to get my buddy who can draw and I got to be able to pay him and then he's going to need an inker and we got to pay that guy, you know, and, and then and we got, oh, well, who the hell is going to color this shit? Well, I don't fucking know. We got to go pay a, you know, a third party digital colorist for for us. Uh, and so now if you can maybe those tools can help you boil this to a one man show a little easier, in which case maybe that could extend the life of the yeah, industry a little bit. And, and we're definitely seeing that more because like the inker is uh, a dinosaur in this industry at this point. People right, just yeah, yeah. inkers. Everybody has the letterer. Yeah. A lettering is all done by fonts now. Uh, coloring, you have computer coloring. I do see more people doing their own computer coloring as well. 
it's like you said, it's just more people are using the tools to do everything on their own. But still, the ultimate question, what is book? Why is book? Why, you know, you could do a cartoon. You could do, you know, you can do stuff in a a medium that actually has a a broad audience. Why would you put that effort into this little tiny ghetto of a few thousand people still buying comic books? You can just actually and it probably you end up employing more people because at this point they've cut so many corners that you've got the same people like you said writing and drawing and coloring and maybe even lettering their own stuff um that's where it takes that kind of passion to even bother to produce a comic book anymore it seems like and since budgets have been slashed they're constantly getting uh people who they're, they're not necessarily bad artists but you're not going to get the, the name brand guys very often anymore in comic books because those guys can just do a commission and make more money than you can pay them to do a page of continuity that they're going to enjoy doing more, you know, anyway than doing continuity for some other writer and some kind of shit. So it's like the people who are the best at doing comic books will either do it because they, they have to, or they're going to just do something else and make more money and have a bigger audience. So it's like, like, like the I'm, guy I'm not, I'm not looking shit. at what's the future of comic books. I'm looking at what's going to happen with the people who used to do comic books when there aren't comics anymore. What, what do they do next? Because there's no reason to do comic books if you want to have a strong career in an industry producing artwork. You don't have to make a comic book for that. Now, it's good for you because you can say I was the artist on this book and you can, you know, they're they're fucking shitty ass inkers that have a career out of going to every goddamn convention in a a region and saying I'm associated with this popular character because I fucking inked it. And I'm not trying to diminish inkers. Some of the ones that come to mind are not necessarily the best inkers. Now, there's some some of these guys that were great artists that happen to ink and they do great work. I'm not and and I love inkers. And I think that there's a synergy that you get from putting a pencil and inker together who are both bringing their greatest strengths to a page and doing wonderful work. I'm a huge fan of inking and embellishing, but there's also a bunch of guys that were just fucking tracers essentially that just didn't really bring anything. And these guys are still milking their association with a popular character with amongst an audience that's ignorant. Oh, you did this popular guy. It's like, he's a fucking inker and he wasn't a particularly good inker, but yeah, his name's out there because he shit does all the cons and you see him at the different cons. So you think he's a big deal when the fact is you're seeing him at all these cons because he's not a big deal. Um, there's still some value in being associated with the production of comic books, but also there's still plenty of people that if you can draw well and you can draw something they ask you to draw or you already have a book of stuff you've already drawn, they like it and they can just buy it from you. You can make plenty of money doing that without ever having to actually produce a comic book. So yeah, it's I just say, a why, why book, you know? I, I will say, though, that, you know, the for a while there, it was like, oh, you know, the guy's kind of a shitty artist, so he just went to go do storyboards for movies. And it turned into being the guys that are designing, con- doing concept drawings and doing, uh, you know, stuff like that. It was like a big deal. People would leave comics to go do that as a as, mm-hmm. wow, I don't have my name on that movie. I think that's the shit that is more endangered by A.I. You can have A.I. storyboard shit left and right or concept mm-hmm. draw stuff left mm-hmm. and right. And nobody would know it's being copied from something else. Yeah, I don't think storyboards is union. I don't don't think there's a storyboard artist union. Yeah, those guys are potentially fucked. Yeah, that's fucked up. Yeah. But hey, maybe that means, you know, maybe there's a way to, I I don't feel like digital comics ever took off the way they they were sort of uh, said they were going to be. But, you know, maybe maybe it moves on to like a a Substack type type of deal. And these guys end up putting their own stuff you know instead of a, the kickstarter model mm-hmm. maybe they're able to do sub substack and you subscribe to the substack and you get pages I, 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 I think pages. the the kickstarter model is probably more economically viable you're you're preaching to uh converts you know you're, you're definitely gonna have a limited audience but i think that the the immediacy of the money 
uh, it seems to work out. Like there are a lot of guys who just don't give a shit about making comics and get into a previous catalog anymore. They just do their Kickstarters and they do quite well with those things. So I, I think, yeah, I mean, it, it, like Substack, it, I, I'm still, I, those guys are still going and taking their Substacks and then going to places like Dark Horse and Image and ha- getting them to pr- do the physical copies eventually. I just don't know how much money there is in the Substack model. Uh, at versus like the Kickstarter where you're getting all this extra stuff. I think also there's a difference in audiences. I think that you probably have younger people who are into the Substack and the older, more veteran people are more into Kickstarter. So, and I, I'm definitely more in the wavelength, even though I don't do Kickstarters. I, I'm that's my audience. You know, th- those I'm part of that audience. So I yeah, understand yeah. their interests more. Where the Substack guys, I know that they've got bigger names doing that stuff. A lot of the Kickstarter guys and the Indiegogo guys are like comic skaters and shit. Um, so that's part of the reason why they do that is because they get to mix the politics and into it. And that helps them with their sales where the guys who do Substack actually usually names in comic books. You've got guys like Scott Snyder and I think Greg Capullo and stuff doing that stuff. So that's them making more money and owning the rights to their shit and having secured those rights can then go and take it to a publisher and get a print copy and right. make an additional revenue stream there. Um, I just don't know how viable that is long term though. Because the reason why those guys have the audiences they have is because they did their time doing, drawing and writing yeah. Batman. And, shit. and at some point, if it's no longer financially viable to do Batman, then you don't do Batman. You can just make Batman movies. You know, why do you need comic books anymore? I think that's one of the problems is that it's we, we only go so long before it's just not economically viable for them to bother to continue to do comic books. And then what happens after that? Because I don't know if there's a strong enough audience to support non uh, 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 I, to support non-corporate IP and to, to support creator-owned projects or smaller universes. And so much of the money is the DC and the Marvel. And again, you look at Diamond, and Diamond says they're still healthy without all these publishers, but they were doing the best they could in a monopoly, and now they no longer have a monopoly. I'm not saying that Diamond isn't viable, but it's going to be a lot harder. They're going to have to probably turn the workforce and they're just not going to have nearly as much money coming in because such a huge portion of the money is in the corporate comic books and they don't have the corporate comic books anymore. So it's like the infrastructure has to be there for the comic industry as we know it to continue to exist. And the infrastructure is crumbling and we're seeing the kind of desperation plays we saw back in the 90s and we never fully recovered from the 90s. And then COVID was another hit and the numbers just keep getting lower and lower. It's like, how long can you sustain this? Well, you can sustain it if you're doing Kickstarters because you can rely on X number of hundreds of people to give you a ridiculous amount of money for stuff. Um, But until they day off, you know, until people don't care about you anymore because you haven't done a mainstream book in 20 years because all you do is any go-go shit now. Yeah. Okay. I, I, that's, that could be the, definitely the canary in the coal mine. If, if the infrastructure to distribute the books is falling apart, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. Um, but okay, again, can, that's the books though. The thing is I'm sure diamond still makes pretty decent money off of all the other shit. Yeah. That's like true. A, a substantial part of the catalog is all the other shit that goes to the comic shops. And there are always going to be people who want their, the pristine boxed one without having to like stand at the target and wait for them to open their boxes. I don't even know how that works anymore. I know that fix it used to be one of those guys where he would knew what, stores to hit and when they get their toys and all this kind of shit but i don't i don't know that there's a lot of those guys out there anymore it doesn't seem like there's nearly as much as there used to be uh so sometimes it's just easier to have a case come into the comic shop and you may pay a, a certain premium but you've selected the one you want and there you know your dealer will get it to you um i think that can sustain diamond for a certain amount of time i just don't know 
how long, you know, how, 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 how much of their industry, how much of their market is what they got off their piece of Marvel and what they got off their piece of DC and what they got off their piece of image. And I mean, if all these other guys go, well, maybe at some point Dynamite decides they want to give Penguin, you know, a try or Lunar a try. It's like when we used to have all those distributors like Capital City and, and you know, uh, what was it, Raw? There was a lot of different comic book distributors. And because of the Heroes World situation, they all went away. And it became Heroes World and Diamond. Once DC signed with Diamond, everybody else jumped to Diamond and everybody else went away. And that's how the Diamond Monopoly came to being because once Heroes World collapsed, Everything just folded into Diamond. Well, if if Diamond is now in the situation that Capital City was in, where all their big stuff is going to other people and all they're distributing is, the, is a smaller and smaller amount of the total pie of comic books, um, they're they're working with so much less money than they used to have, presumably, even with the die discounts and stuff. Can they carry on? And do they continue to erode? Do more people jump ship? And if more people jump ship, when is it no longer sustainable? You know, I I don't know the answer to that question. We're kind of have to wait and see. But you have to assume that these big plays are happening because you've got publishers that are reacting to a, a smaller and smaller audience and wanting a bigger and bigger chunk of what they can get from the remaining audience and the remaining print runs. I mean, it makes sense. But, I mean, it's at least been a somewhat steadily slow decline. It didn't crater. I think, I mean, I think a lot of movies have kind of kept on a live support, you could argue, but. Okay, we'll see. Okay, we're going to close it there because we're already at like well over an hour. Did not, <laughs> this was supposed to be 30 minutes time. And I want to close it by, by showing that the people who are worried about AI, you don't need to be worried yet. Okay. And I all I did was I asked Google's Bard, which I think is the best AI so far that I've used. Um, I asked it to describe the Rolled Spine podcast. You ready for this bullshit? Well, <laughs> is you, it uh, – Point out the inaccurate. You didn't fear this would be easy because we ha- we have our synopsis fucking everywhere on the internet, right? So here we go. Uh, it says the Rolled Spine Podcast is a podcast network hosted by Diablo Frank, Illegal Machine, and Mister Fix It. Not bad so far, okay? The network features a variety of shows, including comic book podcasts, video game podcasts, and general geek culture podcasts. I'm not sure video game podcasts. The is only thing I could maybe because we've done multiple Resident Evil podcasts, I might be maybe where that's they're going it. from. Maybe Resident Evil and Alien maybe is what you know. Maybe that's where there's some crossover there. I don't know. Um, the Rolled Spine Podcast Network was founded in 2012 by Diablo Frank. That is incorrect. Uh, the network's first show, the Marvel Superheroes Podcast, which is correct, was launched in 2013. That is incorrect, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it's possible you created an account in 2013. Nope. I don't There's no way. Nope. Right? Um, the show quickly became popular with Marvel Comics fans. Okay, well, that's debatable. And it has since been joined by a number of other shows, including the Power of the Atom podcast. That's true. Correct. Mm-hmm. The Rolled Spine video game podcast. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> in fact, I Googled it just to make sure somebody didn't ape our name and have a Rolled Spine video game. This does not exist anywhere on the Internet. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Uh, and the Rolled Spine Geek Show. And that's all caps. With the, the T is capitalized. The R is capitalized. The S is capitalized. The G and the S are capitalized. The Rolled Spine Geek Show. So I'm just going to say now we just trademarked that. Okay. In fact, I should make this <laughs> the first episode. I should make this the first episode of the Rolled Spine Geek Show. Just kidding. I would never do that. It's a horrible name. It could be a good name uh, for the Roll- episode, though. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, maybe. Uh, the Rolled Spine Podcast Network is known for its humor, its in-depth discussions, and its passion for geek culture. 
the, that they're kind of used geek like it's derogatory. But uh, anyway, uh, the network's hosts are all lifelong geeks. We were using that word again. And they bring their love of comics, video games and other pop culture to their shows. The World Spine Podcast Network is a great resource for geeks of all ages. The network <laughs> shows are entertaining, informative, and always entertaining. They use entertaining twice in one sentence there. It's entertaining, informative, and always entertaining. Thou doth protest too much. Uh, if you're looking for a podcast to help you geek out, then the World Spine <laughs> Podcast Network is the place for you. We need to make that a commercial that we just run I, on well, everybody i just feel like you could take the geek in that and change it for like the n-word and it would really be like telling you where they're really coming at this from i am not gonna do it's a good show for that. those people if you're one of yeah. those well they talk about those, those people, people they like to talk about black stuff all the black stuff black 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 it's like you know, that's what it sounds like to me when they use geek over and over again like that it's good very urban Lord. it's a very urban podcasting network you know? <laughs> So then it says, here are some of the most popular shows on the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. The Marvel Superheroes Podcast, the show is a weekly discussion, not weekly, of not Marvel well, Comics news, one reviews, and speculation. Yeah, they might have scrubbed that. from. We might have that as a description. So, the Power of the Atom Podcast, this show is a weekly discussion of DC Comics news, reviews, and speculation. The Rolled Spine Video Game Podcast, my old favorite. This show is a weekly discussion of video games, from new releases to classic games. The Rolled Spine Geek Show. This show is a weekly discussion of all things geek culture, from comics to movies to TV shows. You can listen to the Rolled Spine Podcast Network on a variety of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can also find the network show on Rolled Spine Podcast website. I love that you you put this together specifically so we can make sure we have at least a show this week. But apparently we're doing two plus shows every week, according to your AI Dude, program. every day of the week we're releasing podcasts, including some that are completely made up. I also thought it was funny that when it says the, the platforms you can find us on, mm-hmm. this is Google Bard. But it put Apple Podcasts and Spotify before Google Podcasts, which is fucking mm-hmm. hilarious to me. Somebody needs to slap the hand of this uh, AI. This is not <laughs> it doesn't have the uh, – it's not a company man. Anyway, I thought nope. that shit was hilarious because, like, I started reading it at first because this was a fairly long description. Right. And at first, like, glance, it's got years it was founded, years it was launched. And then you start looking at it. It's like it's all complete dog shit. It's mm-hmm. all fucking wrong. And they've got, you know, uh, what, what was that sentence about it being entertaining and then always entertaining within the same sentence? Anyway, it was hilarious. I figured I'd close on that. We don't have anything to worry about yet, guys. This is the best this shit can do. It's like the worst search engine on Earth right mm-hmm. now, so. Yeah, well, that and it's also very Skynet, though, because it's like humans seem to be the problems behind everything. Let's kill all the humans. And it, it, it definitely goes to dark places. Uh, it seems like most of these AI docs have borderline personality disorder. Um, so it, it's yeah, it, it's I do still find it threatening, but I don't think it's going to do what these people think it's going to do. And honestly, I've, I've read up about this. I really do think that it, a lot of the AI is just complete bullshit. It's a thing. Like they were pushing crypto for a long time there, and then crypto proved to be completely fucking ridiculous and had no basis in reality and completely collapsed and wiped out a lot of people. And now they're pivoting to AI as the new thing that they can talk up. Oh, AI is going to change everything. It's going to replace all these people. And it's going to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's like you've already had AI producing articles and listicles and all this kind of stuff. And the places where they've been doing that have been hemorrhaging traffic. Because nobody wants to read that shit, and whether it's done by a human or a robot doesn't matter. It's shit nobody wants to fucking read, and it's opinions that are, you know, incorrect, uh, conclusions that are incorrect, facts that are incorrect. So yeah, you might get the the stray nut job that just takes all that shit without with with without having any critical judgment on it. But most people are reading it's like 
now this is a bunch of bullshit or this isn't just isn't interesting. I don't need to go through another fucking listicle, you know? So <laughs> there's only so much that they can get away with on this stuff. And they are yeah. really rather stupid because it's, they don't have intuition. And I think people underestimate how much you're not necessarily cognizant of how you understand things and how you interpret things, but a lot of it is intuition. And it is just like, we make leaps in logic that machines can't because they are actually linear and we're all over the fucking place. But we can see like, again, the whole, uh, are you a robot thing? We're showing you a bunch of like trimmed images where you have to know what that is in real life to interpret what you're seeing. And that's why they're able to fool robots. And also they do stuff where you, you, you know, you make it fuzzy and you make it unclear and our brains can interpret that where the machines can't because they, they're not, it's, it's not logical. Why would you look at through something through a gauze when you could just see it clearly? They just don't understand. And so they're going to sit there and, and question. It's like the goofy old sci-fi shit like Kirk used to pull on Trek back in the 60s where it, it's illogical, illogical, illogical. It's like they, they even if they come to a conclusion based on the faulty information that they're, they're pulling together, they're going to come to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> and you're never going to be able to trust them to do certain things. I was reading recently too, like things like mammograms where they used AI to help interpret what is being seen because they're trying they're thinking that human error is the problem but the problem is ai error is an even bigger problem and some things they do catch but other things they miss and it seems like the best thing would be a bit of human and a bit of ai but the problem is if the ai uh sways the human incorrectly then it's probably better for human to do the interpretation but it's really bad when the ai is missing what a human can catch when it comes to things like cancers you know you can you can only give these things so much responsibility because they're only capable of so much still and like the the supercomputers uh they for a while there you had all that shit where uh, what was it like blue something where it was beating everybody at chess and shit blue Deep blue. And then they figured out, well, all you do is shit that doesn't make sense and you'll fuck with its game because it understands what you're doing. If you're going through a logical strategy, then it can figure out what you're doing and can, can beat you. But if you do erratic stuff and illogical stuff, it can't figure out, it can't fi- figure out that second and third step because it doesn't understand what you're trying to do and trick it. So there, there clear limitations and and i guess it's a situation where you can never uh count out human ingenuity whatever the machine comes up with we can still come up with shit to fuck it up because we're not rational and they are yeah the, the problem though is with, with this shit like bard and chad gpt it's all it's doing is combing the internet for results it's just it's just a smart search engine, okay? And then and then it the the but it's not a very good the, search engine. That's one of the things they're finding. Well, no, 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 no that's what I'm saying. AI over a search engine, then it, it's not correct. It's not good. Well, because not the internet, good results. No, it, the source is not good, right? Like any motherfucker can just have a website and type an opinion article on it. You know what I'm saying? Like this happens all the time. Wikipedia, where people just yeah, go but in and they just write opinions Wikipedia. on Rolls Fine podcasts. It's 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 not understanding everything. That's it's it, it no no can't I know I know filter. That's what I'm saying. This is like a whole other level of it's actually just making things up that don't exist, which is a whole other problem. Yeah. But for instance, we 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 prompted it at work. We were we just asked. We were like contemplating a question at work, so we asked uh, Chat GPT, and it said that you know there are only two types of whatever widget we were talking about, and we were like that is wrong. So I literally put in it, that's wrong. And it thought for a second and came back and said, oh, you know what? You're right. <laughs> and it spit out another <laughs> article. And it's because the our first article it cited was wrong. It was just wrong. And it didn't know any better. It didn't then well, read the second article and then compare the two and be like, oh, you know what? Article A said it's not. But article B, C, and D all say it is. So these are the ones I should be looking at. It can't do that shit. Right. It's, well, and, and also, other, also it's uh, garbage in, garbage out because the more – 
AI articles that are generated, the exactly. more faulty articles they're drawing from. So it's just exactly. a, a vicious cycle, negative reinforcement. Right. So now you want to have an article about that topic and the AI writes it wrong. You put it on your website and then the next AI reads that wrong article and it shits it out too. That's what I'm saying. I used to say it all the time. Like uh, there's so much bad information on the internet now. If, if you were in college from like two, like 1998 to like maybe 2012, you could kind of get away with only doing research papers using the internet. Yeah, because it was only academics who were contributing. It was only good faith people, knowledgeable people who were on the internet putting right. stuff out there. And now every asshole is putting all kinds of stupid bullshit. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, soon, especially with AI, where people are trying to write their fucking research papers and they're not taking the preamble where it says, "Chat GPT's uh, database only goes back to 2011 or 2021 right now," and they're like, "Don't delete it out." And they're like, "Hey, dude, this is fucking AI. This is written by AI. Uh, you can f in the paper." But, uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's one thing that's great, too, is the teachers are totally onto this shit. They know what to look for, and they can tell. I mean, sometimes they've got filters and got programs, but mostly got, they just they read it. It's like, I know, and you don't, and you clearly are fucking up, and you clearly didn't read the book, didn't read the, the or didn't interpret things correctly, and it sounds an awful lot like you know, a whole bunch of other ones I've seen that happen to be generated by AI. So, yeah, it's you're not fooling anybody with that shit. Yeah, yeah the, the, I think the old-school plagiarism programs that will scrub your uh your paper against things on the internet to find blocks that are similar and say hey i think they plagiarized this shit i think ai might fool some of that stuff but it, before long it's just gonna be like bro you gotta go to the library again like i like i feel like libraries are gonna come back and we're gonna fucking learn the dewey decimal system again because they're gonna be like show me the book you gotta get it out of a book and i want to see a work cited where you're citing the pages in the book again just like we did in the 80s and 90s uh, because that, because we ain't believe all this shit. You're, you're just shitting stuff out from the internet now. So anyway, that, I, I wanted to end it on that. Cause I just, I just typed it in my phone. I was like, Oh, I wonder if like it knows what the role, cause chat GPT doesn't know what role to buy podcast is. I've asked mm-hmm. it before, but both Bing and Bard came up with one. And Bard's answer was hilarious. Bing does an interesting thing. Cause it will actually cite on its response where it pulled it from. So if you're like, mm-hmm. where the fuck, like if it would have said, uh, World's Fine Video Game Podcast, they would have tagged it with a site, and I could have clicked it to figure out where the fuck they got that from. Um, obviously, it, it, like it, really, it basically regurgitated our preamble on Apple Podcasts or whatever, but which is what it should do, but whatever. Anyway, hey, that's all we're going to talk about here, folks. That's it. In fact, if you want me to cut this into two podcasts, <laughs> I got you covered for the next two fucking weeks. Um, but anyway... Hello and Goddag. I am Crystal from the great country of Denmark. Thank you for listening to this World Spine production. A special thanks to those who gave salutations on social media. The author of Otter Zakaria Edward Losey. Between the Pages blog. Billy Heinz. Kenus Kano Estione. Chris Dunford. Chris Lydon. Dear Watchers, a Comics Omniverse podcast. Eight more. Gregory Litchfield The Hammer Strikes Random Geek is Tough Hukov I was Joe Is Julia Raul Rainbow Edition Who Added This Looks Interesting Keith G. Baker King Dinosaur Mike Sen Aliens To Emi Randy Caldwell Mr. Paturbed Resurrections Warlock Thanos Podcast Scott X Speaker of the House Kirk Spencer Superbound, 
Talk Nerdy to Me and the Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey RPG Podcast. Right, exactly. It's like with, with Marvel superheroes, there's an expectation that somebody might want to go to that podcast and not expect a bunch of people talking about dicks and, and buttholes and stuff like that. So we have to kind of tell them, hey, look, I know it's called the Marvel Superheroes podcast, but we're, we're assholes. You know, we're a bunch of a-holes. Be, be aware before you start listening to this shit. With Rolled Spine, why would anybody listen to a Rolled Spine if they weren't didn't already know who we were and what we were up to? You know, so and, and honestly, I like the element of danger. I don't want the parental advisory on the Rolled Spine stuff, except when I literally will put a parental advisory on the art image art or whatever. Okay, I'm gonna hit stop record and.